We have been systematically going through the book of Joshua. Today we come to Joshua chapter 23. I know that it seems on a regular basis I stand before you on a Sunday morning and say this is the most important message in the book of Joshua. I'm so excited about being able to tell you about this text. As we come to Joshua chapter 23, this may be the hardest message I have preached in the book of Joshua. Uh, Hard for a variety of reasons. Because as you look at what Joshua is doing in this passage, a lot of what he is saying to those of us who are in church week after week can seem kind of trite. You need to be in the Bible. You need to love Jesus. You need to stay away you know, from those people who uh, might influence you not to love Jesus. It's that kind of message that uh, he gives throughout. A second reason why this is difficult is that this is a message that's not politically correct in America uh, or in the church. We're going to see that in Joshua chapter 23, Joshua not only warns against the dangers of wandering away from God, he has an awfully strong message about the consequences, and the consequences are stark. As you look at what Joshua is going to say in this text, he's going to let the people of Israel know that the judgment of God is going to be every bit as fierce as the promises of God if you uh, fail to follow him. We don't want to hear that kind of message. We're going to see today, Jesus says the same thing in the New Testament, so it's not just uh, Old Testament stuff, but it's not politically correct. Uh, And so as we start today, if there ever was a week where I need the Holy Spirit of God to be our teacher, uh, it's uh, this week. So would you pray with me as we start? Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, I recognize that what we're about to see in Joshua 23 is not politically correct in America today. It's not what we want to hear in the church. Uh, We don't come to church to find out that there's a God in heaven uh, who is going to say to us there's consequences if we don't follow him. We don't want to hear that there may be the possibility that there might be some who might in some way be judged for their disobedience. We'd like to know that every one of us, no matter who we are, no matter what we've done, automatically are going to go to heaven and will always receive your blessing, whether we're obedient or not. And so, Father, I pray by your Holy Spirit that you will teach us today what I am incapable of communicating. Uh, I pray that as we look at this text, you'll make it come alive to us. We don't want to just study Joshua 23 and have a better understanding of what Joshua said to some folks in 1300 B.C. Lord, we want to know what you're saying to each and every one of us in this room this morning. And so speak to us by your spirit. And for Jesus' sake, we pray. Amen. Few people know that both sets of Ernest Hemingway's grandparents were committed evangelical Christians. The uh, grandparents on his uh, father's side were very close friends of D.L. Moody. D.L. Moody, the evangelist at the turn of the 1900s, uh, who was used by God to see countless thousands, tens of thousands, come to faith in Jesus Christ. On his mother's side of the family, His maternal grandfather had such a close relationship with Jesus Christ that the members of the family called him Abba. Abba is the word that Jesus uses when he refers to his heavenly father. It's kind of his fond name of calling God his uh, heavenly father. They use that name to talk about the maternal grandfather of Ernest Hemingway. One of his uncles was a missionary to China. But if you know anything about the life of Ernest Hemingway, Uh, He did not live his life as a believer in Christ whatsoever. Once he left Oak Park, Illinois, and set out on his own, uh, he made this statement about himself. I live in a vacuum that is as lonely as a radio tube when the batteries are dead 
and there's no current plugged into it. And, of course, you probably know uh, that later in life, Hemingway took his own life in his disillusionment and his lostness before God. Uh, The story of Ernest Hemingway uh, tells us something that's very important to uh, Joshua in the book of Joshua. Uh, We come today to uh, the last words and testimony of Joshua. It's a a two-part section. Chapter 23, verses 1 through 16, is part 1. And then chapter 24 uh, is his second uh, part of this. We're going to just look at chapter 23 today. So in chapter 23, Joshua has been leading the people of Israel, now we believe, by about 25 years. The see, he starts. It's been a long time. Well, about 25 years. He's uh, 110 years old at this point. So what he's trying to do is to urge these soldiers who have fought with him uh, through the course of claiming the promised land to stay faithful to God. That's the essence of his message. Don't wander from God. Now that you've seen God keep all of his promises and not one of his promises have failed. Now, what you need to do, because God has been faithful to you, is you need to be faithful to him. So that's the essence of these last two chapters. Uh, God has proven his faithfulness. Now, are you going to be faithful to him? Joshua's fear is that there might be people in Israel who would become like Ernest Hemingway. They got grandparents who know all about what God did in uh, parting the Red Sea and causing the Jordan River to back up 26 miles and causing the walls of Jericho to fall down. Now, they would know those stories, maybe be able to recite those stories, but in their day-to-day life, it wouldn't mean much of anything to them. And in fact, if we look ahead to the book of Judges, Joshua's worst fears were fulfilled. Because as you look at the book of Judges, as Joshua is saying in this passage of Scripture, do not become like the nations around you. That's exactly what Israel did. And as Joshua says, stay in the word. Well, they didn't do that. As he urges them to cling and to cleave to God, they didn't do that either. And as Joshua warns, if you don't do that, there are going to be some consequences. Well, in the book of Judges, there's consequence upon consequence uh, as the enemies of God come and make life miserable for the people of God. So uh, Joshua is being a bit predictive in what he says here. And as we look at this, uh, I see four safeguards that Joshua gives us that we need to remember if we're going to keep from being prone to wander or if we're thinking about our children or our grandchildren, four safeguards for them that we need to keep before us if we're going to help them from being prone uh, to wander. Now, the first we see in verse 6 of Joshua 23. Be very strong... Be very careful to obey all that is written in the book of the law of Moses. Now, remember at this point, uh, they had the first five books of the Bible. That's it. So that's what we're talking about. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So be very careful to observe all that's written in the law of Moses without turning aside to the right or to the left. Now, in the context of this passage, uh, the implications of the importance of the word of God and what it's going to tell us is evident back in uh, verses uh, 3 and following. Because uh, in verse 3, Joshua reminds us what we should know to be true as we've been going through this book. Uh, You see yourselves, or you yourselves have seen everything that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, 
It was the Lord your God who fought for you. So when we read the Word of God, what are we going to find out? We're going to find out that there's a great omnipotent God of heaven who fights for his people. You go on in the next uh, section that I have, and it's what's going to happen in the future too. The Lord God will fight for you in the future. That's what the the Bible declares uh, to us. So inasmuch as we know that he's going to fight for us, we can be assured of a second truth that we see in verses 9 and 10. He will keep his promises to you. And then in verse 14, reiterating that again, uh, he will keep his promises to you. And we can look at that and say from a New Testament perspective, what are his promises? Well, he who has begun a good work in you is going to complete it. Or if God be for you, who or what can be against you? Or all things work out for the good, for those that love God, who are the called according to his purpose. Now, one thing that perhaps you're not ready to receive that is at the heart of this text is those promises are true. But God doesn't guarantee, if you look carefully at what we're going to see in Joshua 23 and what we're going to see in the New Testament, God doesn't guarantee that the promises always are going to be true for you. It depends on what you do with the Word of God. It depends on what you do in your relationship with God because this text, the part that's not politically correct, says if you're disobedient, if you wander from Him, if you turn your back on Him, well, don't expect to claim the promises of God. Because there's worse news. As you look at this text, God says, if you disobey me and if you don't seek me and if you don't cleave to me, there's going to be snares. There are going to be traps. There are going to be whips on your back that you're going to experience. That's what that's what this section of Scripture uh, says. And as I said in a bit, we'll uh, see some New Testament texts uh, that say uh, the same thing. Now, the clear implication of this, you get away from the negative stuff, is that the good news is God says, if you're really following me, you can claim the promises. If you're really following me, I will fight for you. Uh, We had a a fellowship time, or I should say the Navigators uh, Sunday School class put on a meal for Teen Challenge uh, last week uh, across in our fellowship hall. And I went across, I... Uh, I w- tried to make it to each table and find out, you know, who was there and how long you've been in Teen Challenge and tell me a little bit of your story. And as I was going from uh, table to table and having those kids uh, talk to me about their story, what I heard over and over again from almost everyone who was talking about their story was, today, what I know is that I've got to be in the Word of God and I've got to be in prayer and I've got to get to my little brother and my little sister and I've got to tell them, you've got to get in the Word, you've got you to be praying. Now, as I uh, thought about that, I remember an incident that happened in this church um, well, a few, well, I guess probably a year or two ago. Uh, if you are here last week, Spencer Ciotti, uh, Ciotti, who grew up in this church, was one of the ones who gave a wonderful testimony of uh, how he had gone to Florida and he'd run from his parents and run from God. And then he came back here to Minnesota. He was arrested and then g- given the option of going to jail or going to Teen Challenge. He went to Teen Challenge. And God got a hold of his heart. If you saw him last week, you know, the suit on and the smile on his face. Uh, he sent me an application this week because he's applying to be a student at Northwestern College. Uh, and he, he thinking about doing ministry now. So it's incredible transformation in Spencer Ciotti's life. But I stood out in the uh, uh, foyer about a year ago as Tony Ciotti's older brother, who'd also gone through Teen Challenge, was standing next to Spencer and me. 
And he turned to Spencer and he said, Spencer, what you need to do, Spencer, you got to get in the word. You got to be praying. And Spencer had this glazed look on his face. Stuff had just gone right over the top of his head. And for the next year, he ignored that counsel of his brother because he just couldn't see it. He couldn't see it. And that's my concern as I share something as trite as get into the word of God, because I know that we can have the glazed look. We can say, oh, yeah, you know, that's that legalistic stuff. You've got to do the Bible, read the Bible. And if there's no power in it, well, then don't do it. If you can't meet the living God in it, well, then I wouldn't recommend it. If God isn't the God who keeps his promises, well, it's a waste of your time. If the God who has uh, written this word for us through his messenger is not the God who's going to fight for us, well, why don't you read Reader's Digest instead? But Joshua in this text is reminding us of the truth. Our God is a God who fights for his people. Our God is a God who keeps every single one of his promises. And what he is saying is, people of God believe that. Stand on that. Let that motivate you to say, I want to read the Bible by myself because I want to meet the living God. I want to get together with my husband and my wife and I want to read the Word of God in my family because it's the way to capture the heart of God. Uh, As a parent, I want to read the Bible with my kids because if I'm going to keep my kids from wandering or or worse yet, a kind of dead orthodoxy where we go to church and we play church and we do some sort of church game, but they never interact with the living God who answers prayer. Well, I want to get my kids in the Word. I want them to meet that kind of Jesus because it's through His Word that we meet Him. Well, there's a second safeguard. We see it in verse 7. By the way, if you're new today, I should have said this earlier. I'm reading from page 230 in your pew Bible. Page 230. Do not associate with these nations that remain among you, and do not invoke the names of their gods or swear by them. You must not serve them or bow down to them. So we need to keep uh, uh, to keep from wandering. We need to stay apart. We need to remind ourselves. Uh, what Joshua is saying, particularly what Joshua is saying. Remember, as we've gone through this book, we've noted that the uh, book of Joshua is the book of promise. God had made a promise to Abraham some 700 years earlier. The promise was, Abraham, miraculously, I'm going to give you children. And Isaac was the first child that God gave to uh, Abraham and Sarah through a miracle of God. And then through these children, I'm going to give you a nation. And then, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. And Joshua is the one for God that is claiming that land some 700 years later. And remember, we've gone through the book. The reason it took so long is that God wanted to give those Canaanites 700 years to repent of their sin and turn to him. That's why that's why he waited 700 years. And then the third thing uh, that God says in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 is that the nations are going to be blessed by you and your family and the nation that comes from you, uh, Abraham. So what is God's goal? Well, God's goal is for us to invite our friends to the Phil Donner event this week because he wants the nations to be blessed. God's intent is for us to invite our friends to uh, something like the edge of the spear. Joan and I invited our neighbors uh, to the edge of the spear and they had a hockey tournament. So then they said, well, how about we just go to a movie and dinner later? 
So we'll be taking our neighbors to something other than the edge of the sphere. I'm not quite sure what. But, but the point is, we're to reach out to our neighbors and our friends because God's expectation is that we as the church, the people of God, are to allow the nations of the world to be blessed through us. So it's not don't ever associate with people who don't know Jesus. That is not what this is saying at all. Well, what is it saying then? What it's saying is that in our association with the world, we need to be careful that we don't start idolizing what the world idolizes. In our association with the world, we need to make sure that the standard of the world, what they value, doesn't become what we value. And in this uh, chapter, it's remember what Moses said. And what's basic to Moses, uh, what Moses said uh, is the Ten Commandments. So I thought I'd remind you of the Ten Commandments. This is the Minnesota version of the Ten Commandments. You betcha. There's only one God, you know. That's the first commandment. Second commandment, don't make that fish on your mantle an idol. Third commandment, cussing ain't Minnesota nice. Fourth commandment, go to church even when you're up north. Fifth commandment, honor your folks. Sixth commandment, and this is one of the more important ones, don't kill, catch and release. (laughs) Seventh commandment, there's only one Lena for every holy, no cheating. Eighth commandment, if it ain't your lutefus, don't take it. That'll never be a problem for me. (laughs) Ninth commandment, don't be bragging about how much snow you shoveled. Tenth commandment, keep your mind off your neighbor's hot dish. (laughs) What is it that we need to fear? Uh, The idols of the world. Well, there are a lot of them. Our job can become an idol. I think our family can become an idol as it might separate us from God. A family becomes more important than God. Obviously, money can become an idol. Maybe you heard the story about the, uh, the man uh, who lived for his money and he told his wife before he died, I want you to put all my money in the casket with me. Promise me, promise me you're going to bury me with my money. And she said, oh, sweetheart, I'll do that. Well, then he died. And um, before they closed the casket, she had this little box that she brought up and she put on his chest and they closed the casket. One of her closest friends who knew about his request came up to her afterwards and said, now, I know that your husband was insisting that you bury him with all his, his money. You didn't do that, did you? And she said, yes, I did. What do you mean you did that? How, how could you do that? She said, well, I wrote him a check. Joshua's point in this text is it's too easy for us to get caught up in the values of the world. We want to reach them. We want the nations to be blessed. But be very, very careful that you don't start idolizing what the world idolizes. The third safeguard here is in verses 8 through 11. This is the one that hit me the hardest, maybe because of the significance of a couple of Hebrew words that we see here. If we're going to keep from wandering, we need to stay close. Look at verse 8. But you are to hold fast to the Lord your God as you have until now. Now that phrase, hold fast, uh, translate the same identical word uh, in, in the Hebrew text that we see in Genesis 2.24. Genesis 2.24 is that text that says, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and cleave, cling to his wife. 
That's the word that appears here. Cleave or cling. Same word as in Genesis 2.24. This is a word that's used in the Old Testament to describe the way that crocodile scales stick to the side of crocodiles or fish scales stick to the side of fish. It's an inseparable kind of clinging. Now, you even think of it in terms of the relationship with the husband and wife. What is uh, Moses saying in Genesis 2.24? What he's saying is there are occasions in our relationship with our spouse where we might let our parents get in the way. You know, maybe it's uh, uh, we're catering to mom and dad and it hurts our spouse somehow. I mean, if, I'm sure all of us have seen evidences of that. And the point of the text is, if you've got to make a choice between honoring your father and mother and loving your spouse, you love your spouse. Because you're to, you're to cleave inseparably to your spouse. Now, with that picture in mind, what does this denote to you about our relationship with Jesus? Cling to Jesus. Cleave to Jesus. Now, is it enough to say, well, I believe there's a Jesus. That's not clinging to me. That's not cleaving to me. I have every one of the letters that Joan wrote me when we were dating still. Every one of them. Uh, on Valentine's Day, we started a tradition in the Kenworthy family, and some of you know the story behind it. It's because of my own stupidity. I asked my son on one occasion, how do you know, George, that I love you? And he said, Jed, I don't know that you do. And I was kind of shocked by that. And so we started uh, writing uh, Valentine's cards where the, uh, the whole card is we're telling one another how we felt loved in the last year. Got my Valentine's card uh, from Michelle, and it brought tears to my eyes as she was telling me what she feels about me. Uh, and her love uh, uh, for me, that's what we're talking about. If you love somebody, you're going to tell them I love you. You're going to tell them how much they mean to you. You're going to want to enter into their presence and say, let's talk. And Joshua is saying, if you want to keep from wandering, if you really want to keep from wandering, if you want to keep your kids from, uh, from wandering, your grandchildren from wandering, you've got to teach them what it means to cleave to Jesus. To cling uh, to Jesus. We, we go on in this text, and there's, uh, there's more. But uh, I, I came across something that was just sort of goofy to me. It just struck me as really stupid, but uh, relates to uh, the problem we face. Uh, in the uh, Izu Islands of Japan, uh, there was a research that was done on the albatross. This is a kind of duckish bird. I think we have it. There he is. Um, Fumio Sato set out a hundred decoys in an area where they wanted to attract uh, some of these birds. Well, there's a particular bird by the name of Deco who came. And for two years, he was courting a wooden duck. He would build nests for this wooden decoy, uh, would uh, chase away any other albatrosses that uh, came around. Uh, for two years, he spent his time uh, trying to mate with this wooden decoy. Ultimately, uh, Fumio Sato, the Japanese researcher, in what was a classic understatement, says, Deiko seems to have no desire to date real birds. <laughs> now, that's what Joshua is getting at here. Do you have a desire to meet the real God? The God who loves you? The God who keeps his promises? the God whose word is true, the God who's never going to fail you or forsake you, or uh, is your God some sort of a wooden God, a sterile God? Uh, God, as you're in your presence, there's 
no ruffling of feathers. There's no talking because the God is dead. How do we stay close? Well, as we go on in the text, still talking about uh, this, uh, what does it mean uh, to love? Um, Continue on, verse 9. The Lord has driven out before you great and powerful nations to this day. No one has been able to withstand you. That's the kind of God we serve. One of you writes, routes a thousand. That's what we're supposed to expect. Because the Lord your God fights for you just as he promised. So, and here's the text, be very careful to love the Lord your God. Literally, in the original text, it says, take care for your very souls to love God. Uh, I've uh, mentioned this before. The Hebrew word nephesh, which is the word for soul, means one's appetite, one's passion, one's desire, oneself. So literally the text is, set your appetite, set your passion, set your desire to love God. That's what you need to do. And as you're encouraging your kids, it's not enough to say, well, what did you learn in Sunday school today? The, the real question is, as you were in Sunday school, did you come to love Jesus more? What did Jesus say to you? What, are you? what are you hearing as you're reading the Bible from God? How are you meeting the living God as, as you're involved in Sunday school or personal Bible study or whatever, whatever it is? There was a mom who was putting her four-year-old daughter to bed one evening, and she read her the story of the prodigal son, told the story about this son who took his inheritance and ran away from his father and and squandered all of his money, and then he went to a, an area where he had no money anymore and ended up uh, in the pigsty uh, eating with pigs. And then after she told the uh, story to her daughter, well, then, of course, you know, finished the story about the, the son coming home and his father with his arms outreached, re- was ready to embrace that son, did embrace that son to himself. So she told the story, she said, so, sweetheart, what do you think is the point of the story? And the little girl thought for a moment, and she said, don't leave home without your credit card. (laughs) Obviously, that is not the point of the story. The point of the story is there's a father who wants a relationship with you. He wants it more than you want it yourself. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've said, no matter where you've been, no matter how much stink is on your clothes or in your heart, there's a heavenly father who's got his arms out to you and saying, come to me. Come to me. I will keep my promises to you if you just come to me. I will fight for you if you just come to me. So please come to me. One other safeguard that we see in this uh, passage for us, for our children and our, our, our grandchildren. We keep from wandering when we stay faithful. This is the part that we really don't want to see in the text, but it's here. And uh, if I'm going to teach what God's word says, I've got to to tell it to you. Verse 12, if you turn away and ally yourself with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your back and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. That's hardly good news, but it's the truth from God's word. A consequence of disobedience is defeat. And uh, if you uh, heard 
what we heard last week from a number of those kids uh, who gave their testimony, they know something about defeat. You turn away from God and you live for yourself and you get into drugs or I mean, whatever it is, you're going to experience defeat. The good news is if you end up in the pigsty and you're low enough and desperate enough and you turn to God, that's all God is looking for. We heard that last week. But apart from God, expect defeat. Apart from God, expect discomfort, specifically snares and traps and whips and thorns. Now, these snares that are described here were bird traps. They had some that they'd have on the ground. Uh, they had a little trigger. In, in the New Testament, this is called the scandalon. Uh, our word scandal comes from it. You come and, you, and you, the bird would hit the little scandalon, this little, little lever. And as soon as the bird would hit the lever, the, the snare would come and grab the bird. Then they had these bigger ones that they would have in trees uh, that would catch bigger birds. And, of course, whips and thorns don't need a lot of explanation for us. The point is, wander from God. Uh, choose to live your own way. And expect that you're going to experience snares and traps and thorns and whips. Again, I just refer back to last week. We heard lots of testimonies last week about uh, young people who have experienced that. And we know that in our own life. I know that's true for me. Get away from God. Don't love God. Don't tell him I love him. Don't cleave to him the way I know I should. And the snares and the traps are all around. Now, there's another consequence, and that's disgrace in our last uh, few verses, verses 14 through 16. Uh, first, the good news, verse 14. Now, I'm going about the way of the earth. Uh, you know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord uh, your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. That is the good news from Joshua, and that's the good news from God's Word. God's going to keep His promise to you. The question is, are you going to remain faithful uh, to Him? Notice the rest of this, the warning. But just as every good promise of the Lord your God has come true, so the Lord will bring on you all the evil He has threatened until He has destroyed you from this good land He has given you. If you violate the covenant of the Lord... the Covenant, this was the type of Susan Treaty. God says, you know, here's what I'm going to do for you, and here's uh, in obedience what I expect back. I mean, that's, that's what he's talking about. There are a lot of these Susan Treaties throughout the, the Near East. Uh, if you violate the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow, bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly perish from the good land he has given you. It's not good news, but it's the truth of, of God's word. And you say, well, that's just the Old Testament, isn't it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul is talking about the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ suffered and died and rose again. This is the gospel that I have preached to you, lest my labor be in vain. So he's talking to the church. And he's saying to the church, there's a possibility that though you've heard my preaching, you've responded to my preaching, all my work could be in vain, depending on what you do with the gospel. Or in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1, here's what the author of Hebrews says. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we don't drift away from it. Do you think this author is concerned about people wandering? Or chapter 3 and verse 6 in the book of Hebrews. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house. And we are his house if we hold, or 
And we are in his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. So you've got to hold on. Or in chapter 6, uh, in verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. I know what some of you are saying. You know, George, aren't you a Calvinist? What about once saved, always saved? I mean, what do you do with that? Well, I can tell you what a good Calvinist will do with these texts. A good Calvinist would look at these texts and say, these texts are not talking about people who are saved. Uh, these texts are talking about people who only thought they were saved. Because if you are a good Calvinist, you're going to say uh, that if you've really given your life to Jesus, you will be going to heaven. But a good Calvinist will also say there are a lot of folks who are deluded, who don't know uh, what they don't know. How else do you explain what Jesus Christ himself says in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, where he says, uh, in the latter days, at the end of the age, there are going to be people who are going to come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not uh, do miracles in your name? And Jesus Christ himself says, I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So there are people uh, who are going to think uh, that they are Christians and they're not even close. That's what the New Testament is saying. Or... Uh, take Second Corinthians chapter 13 uh, and verse 5. And this is not perhaps a uh, terribly familiar text, but notice what it says. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize uh, that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? Or Second Peter 1.10 Make your calling and election sure. Or one last verse, 1 John 5.13, where John says, These things have been written that you may know that you have eternal life. Now that begs the question, what things, John? What are the things? How do we pass the test? How do we know for sure that when we die, we're going to go to heaven? Well, there are three tests in 1 John. Test number one. Uh, is the doctrinal test. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ who came in the flesh and he died and was raised from the dead? And if you can say, yes, I do, well, that's test one. Test number two uh, is the moral test. Two parts to the moral test. First, if you say that I do not sin, there's no sin in me, you're a liar. The truth is not in you. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive your sin. So you've got to acknowledge that you're a sinner. You should never have a point in your life where someone says, you committed any sin this last week, and you say, eh, no, don't think so. Not in the last month, not in the last year, not in the last ten. You're a liar, says John, and you fail the test if that's the case. Second part of the test, First uh, John 3. If you continue habitually sinning, how can you say that Jesus is in you? Because if Jesus is in you, he's going to give you victory. That's what we've read. He's going to keep his promises. He's going to fight for you. You're going to grow. It's not to say you're never going to sin, but there's going to be evidence of your growth. You can't be a Christian, according to John. If you say, well, I made some decision for Christ when I was three, and I've been living for the devil ever since, according to my reading of, of John, that's not a Christian. Because that person's going to flunk the test, the moral test. And then there's the social test. That's the third test. Uh, the social test is summarized in several places in John, but maybe you know this verse. Beloved, let us love one another. For everyone whose love is born of God and knows God. Well, if you know God, there's going to be the love of God about you. And 1 John 3:17. if you see your brother in need, how can you close your heart to your brother? 
if you got Jesus in you, you can't. You can't. Three tests. You want to know for sure if you're going to heaven? Read 1 John. It was written to answer that question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? That he died for your sin? He was raised from the dead. Do you believe that? And do you know that as you receive Jesus Christ into your life, old things have passed away, all things have become new? That's why you can say, I'm passing the moral test, not because of who I am, but because of the strength that I have through Christ Jesus. And if you know Jesus, you will love because Jesus is love. You can't help it. You can't help it. I know this is hard stuff. It's not politically correct, but I do believe this is what the uh, Scripture teaches. And I also know... Uh, that for maybe many of us in this room, uh, we can say, yeah, George, I believe everything you told me today. I want to cling to Jesus. I want to love him with all my heart. I want to be in his word. I want to be a person of prayer. I want to be one who is trusting in the power of God. Um, But not everybody I care about is at that point. I've got kids who aren't there. I've got grandkids who aren't there. And maybe, maybe some of you today would say, that's not where I am either. So in conclusion, what can we do? What can we do if you've wandered and you know it? Your relationship with Jesus is not what you want it to be today. What can you do? First suggestion. Know that there's nothing that you have done that Jesus will not forgive. I often have people ask me, what's the unpardonable sin? Have I committed the suicide of the unpardonable sin? I can tell you, no, it's not. And if you want me to prove it to you scripturally, I think I can do that. Uh, What's the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin is rejecting Jesus. That's it. That's the unpardonable sin. Uh, Anything else that you have done, anything else that you have done, Jesus will forgive. And even if you have rejected Jesus in the past and today you're ready to say, I want to embrace Jesus, well, then you've not committed the unpardonable sin. No matter what you have done, you need to believe that God the Heavenly Father wants a relationship with you more than you want a relationship with Him, and you've got to believe that. Just know that He's going to forgive anything that you've done, no matter what it is. Second suggestion. Well, you need to confess. If you believe that he's going to forgive anything that you've done, well, then ask him to. Uh, confess your sin and say, Lord Jesus, I've blown it. I've wandered from you, and I, uh, I'm not proud of that, but forgive me for what I've done. And what does John say? You do that. Jesus is going to be faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So confess it. Suggestion number three, believe. Sometimes we can confess and we wallow in guilt because we don't believe. We can say, yeah, you know, I confess this, whatever sin it is, but I still feel awful. If you're feeling awful, it's not because Jesus hasn't forgiven you. It's because you're wallowing in your guilt. You need to take Jesus at his word. And when he says, if you confess your sin, I'm going to cleanse you. You need to take him at his word and say, well, then if he's cleansed me, I'm cleansed. I am a son, a daughter of the almighty. Uh, Look at me because Jesus is in me. I am forgiven. We need to believe. And then fourthly, last expectation, we need to expect. If we've been going through the book of Joshua, if I've been faithful in any way to declare what's in this book, uh, the book of Joshua is a book that says, we have a God who will fight for you. We have a God who's going to keep his promises, every single one of his promises. We have a God who longs to have an intimate relationship with you. He wants to cleave, to cling to you like a husband cleaves to his wife. That's what he wants. What do you expect? That's the question. What do you expect? Do you expect a dead Jesus? 
who's not going to do anything, who's not going to answer any prayer, who's not going to hear you when you cry out to him? Uh, Do you expect a dead relationship? Do you expect to have dead Bible studies where nothing happens? You open the word and you say, oh, geez, I can't understand this and this is so boring and I've got to do this because it's my duty. Or do you enter into your relationship with God, open his word and say, I'm expecting to meet you here, Jesus, so meet me. And as you come before him with prayer, as you pray, you're saying, God, I know that you're a God who's going to fight for me, so I'm expecting that. So fight for me. As you're reaching out to your friends and neighbors and wanting to invite them to a Phil Downer kind of event, whatever that event is, and you say, oh, I don't know if i got the courage to do this. Do you believe what Jesus himself said? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It's not you. It's going to be me through you. Trust that. Believe that. Expect that. Because my church is a church that the gates of hell cannot stand against. My people are a people who can claim my promises that I will never leave them or forsake them. They can claim my promise that the good work that I've started in them, I'm going to complete it. My people can claim my promise that everything's going to work out for the good for those that love God and who are the called according to his purpose. May we take God at his word and then obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you. I have no way of knowing how people heard me today. I know this is not a politically correct message. Uh, I I know outside of a church, probably people who would hear me would say, boy, that's pretty judgmental stuff there, George. But but you know my heart, Lord. I want to declare the truth of your word. I want to be faithful in sharing what it is that I see you saying. And, Father, I'm trusting that you're going to do your work in the hearts and lives of the people who uh, heard this message today. Father, if there's some in this service who know they've been wandering from you, I pray that before they leave, they'll, they'll let you know that they, they know that's true. Uh, that they'll know that if they just simply confess what they have done, that you are anxious to forgive them and enter into relationship with them again. And then, Father, I pray for each and every one of us, no matter what we face, no matter how much hopelessness we've endured this last week, God, may you create in us a level of expectation that you are the great and awesome God your word says you are that you do keep your promises to your people, uh, that you are ready to enable us to experience the power of prayer and the power of transformed life. God, we commit ourselves to that. And then for members of our family, children, grandchildren, neighbors, friends who have no idea what it is to be in a relationship with you, some who perhaps have said that they know you and maybe even call themselves Christians, but they're nowhere close. God, we pray that you'll give us a sense of expectation what you want to do in their lives. And then, Father, we pray that you'll help us to be better in communicating your love, your power, your awesomeness so those who are worshiping some sort of a dead duck decoy may find the real thing through Jesus Christ. We pray in his name.